doubt about it, Mr. Jameson. This little caper has cat burglar written all over it. Welcome back and welcome to season two, episode six, that's counting bonuses, of course, of me and my friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. And a very special welcome and shout out to our newest patron, Someone I've known since I was knee-high to an antelope. What? Shut it, you. My people, make some noise for the one and only... Bigger the Dawn. Welcome aboard, Bigger. You couldn't have come at a better time because this week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 30, The Claws of the Cat. And if people aren't stalking the night, we've got Spidey prowling for the cat, we've got the cat prowling for a come-up, We've got Betty giving Pete the most surprising news to ever grace the pages of ASM thus far. And I promise you, more drama than the All My Children episodes when Tad was trapped in the mausoleum. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got THE Amazing Spider-Man number 30, The Claws of the Cat. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs. I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned, look out, it's me and my friend P. The cover. The cover of ASM number 30 reminds me of those golden age pulp comics. A lot of gray, very few splashes of color, but where there is color, man does it pop. We've got THE Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman, Shade Goldenrod with Spidey Costume Red silhouetting his name atop spider's webs as usual. In a scene that is predominantly shades of gray, we have two large city buildings dominating this cover, separated by an alley in a beautiful three-point perspective. On the main street, below these buildings, we have a police barricade set up. Those police line do not cross sawhorses in the lower right corner of the page with Mike, Ike, Officer Blackman, and the rest of the boys, seven police cars with an eighth off panel. The eighth car and one car behind the barricade are both shining spotlights on the rooftop of the building that's staged left center. The spotlight of the car on the page is shining on a collapsing water tower. The spotlight of the 8th car is shining its golden light on the golden liability who, suited and booted in his spidey costume, red and blue, is backflipping up the sheer wall of the building beneath a large water tower that has been blown from its hinges and is careening over the side of the roof above our hero's head. Stage right of this, we see a man on a rope line staring at the carnage and this guy's ready for all sorts of action. He's got on a green one-piece bodysuit and purple satchel packs wrapping his waist with another on his back, purple balaclava, purple boots, purple gloves, and this guy is clearly the guy who's blown one of New York's many iconic water towers. But who is he? A red caption box beneath his dangling feet lets us know. Only the batty Marvel bullpen could present such a truly dazzling display of daring do as the claws of the cat. You heard the bullpen? We've got daring do! Let's get into it. The credits. The credits on this one, no SNS connection, but another all-star tandem. Heroically written and edited by Stan Lee. Homerically plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko. Hastily lettered and bordered by Artie Samek. Sparkling Sam takes a break from the Triple S connection, but we all know Artie's no slouch, so we're in good hands. Best place to start is the beginning, so of course, we have... Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the title of this issue, The Claws of the Cat. On a sky blue backdrop, the word claws is written so that the edges of every letter look like they've been clawed by sharp, well, claws. And the word cat is written in cat's fur. The A of the word has eyes and ears at its top point. They are laying this one on thick. Beneath this, on a purple backdrop and a goldenrod banner, we get, in which our web-spinning wonder encounters a brand new foe, while finding himself still beset by the same old problems. It is more than likely that this little excursion into adventure will meet with your unqualified approval. Under this in a perfect circle, we see Spider-Man upside down, his legs bent open and wide, 
gripping web lines with each hand between them. His back to us, and we've got a who's who of headshots. JJ, his right eye covered by Spidey's right shoulder, cigar in mouth, has his left eye locked on Spidey and a sneer on his lips. We get Ned Leeds, blonde hair, his eyes closed, his head is in profile stage right in the circle, partly obscuring Betty Brant's face, who's smiling, her bob, flawless. Above them, we have Queen Aunt May with her chin facing north and eyes closed, a somber expression on her face. Stage left in the circle, we get the lion-hearted Liz Allen, her blonde hair in curls, she's side-eyeing the webhead. Beneath her, Flash fashion on, eh, in his signature green turtleneck with black stripes, his hands on his hips, a scowl on his face, he's staring straight ahead at us. Don't look at me like that, Flash, I didn't do it. And superimposed in front of him, we get a purple gas mask face with mirrored lenses and an oval sky blue circle where the mouth hole should be. It is a strange mask. Directly beneath Spidey's head, we see the cat sprinting stage left, the purple of his suit on the cover replaced by brown on his gear, except for his balaclava, which is now black. And finally, a headshot of a sad-faced Peter Parker, who's looking directly at us. I know, Pete, this one's rough. In the purple negative space, on the lower half of the page, we get a goldenrod arrow pointing towards this adventure. And now, we bring you one of the most eagerly awaited moments of all. The moment you begin to read another mighty Marvel masterwork. We turn the page. If it's page two and it's the silver age of comics, you know it's going to open with a caption box. Last issue, shaken by the threat of the scorpion, Betty Brent was escorted home by Spidey's rival for her affections, Ned Leeds. And we find Betty where we left her last issue, in her pink cashmere, laying on the sofa of her apartment, her brown-haired friend sitting in front of her in a purple blouse and SJB skirt. Ned Leeds is standing behind them both in his brown suit, orange tie. Betty's asking Ned what she would have done without him. He's telling her to rest up. Her friend's saying she'll watch over our favorite girl Friday. Frustrated and angry by the sudden turn of events, our hero did not realize that his elderly Aunt May was attempting to conceal her fainting spells from him. Dot, dot, dot. And we find Aunt May in the kitchen of the Parker home. She's in a brown sweater. She's got on a dark brown collared shirt. And beneath the shirt, she's wearing a matching apron. And she's bracing on the counter with her left hand to her forehead, thinking she can't let her nephew know how she's been feeling. Last issue, May passed out in the kitchen. That night, when their neighbor, Mrs. Watson, drops by, Peter breathes a sigh of relief. Dot, dot, dot. Mrs. Watson, in all green, head to foot, has come over to take May out to the movies, and May says, let me grab my hat, while Pete, in the foreground, thinks this is perfect timing. Great! Now Spider-Man will have a chance to prowl the city. Spidey's on the prowl. Minutes later, a swift, silent figure effortlessly swings over the shadowy streets below. Dot, dot, dot. And the golden liability, suited and booted, taking no moment to celebrate his win over the Scorpion, is back to work. Web swinging above the city we know and love. He's thinking much the same as he was the start of last issue. Wouldn't you know it? Just when I'm in the mood for some action, the city's as dumb as Jonah Jameson's wise cracks. Translation? Courtship of violence. He finishes his thoughts, wondering if Betty is okay. But so preoccupied is he with his own thoughts that Spidey doesn't notice, dot, dot, dot. Comic timing has put the cat on the scene as Spidey web swings by and we see the cat on his grapple line, scaling the sheer wall of a building, thinking that Spidey not spotting him was a close call, that the webhead could have just ended his career. Up close now, we see the man's middle aged, white with a long face, a stub of a nose, and thick, bushy eyebrows. Shout out to Eugene Levy, back too. I gotta give it to the man, Every villain in Spidey comics before this one has monologued out loud, but not him. Not slowed by the webhead's appearance at all. He's thinking that he's nothing but small potatoes to our hero that Spidey's only after, supervillains. He must not have seen all the Berber gang tales Spidey's been kicking throughout the years. The cat stops on a window ledge and pulls a glass cutter from his utility belt to break into the apartment. In the final panel of the page, he does this easily, and now in the darkened apartment, he clicks a flashlight on thinking the apartment's empty, a perfect setup for someone with my particular talents. On three, the cat gets right to work. Shrouded in darkness, he finds the wall safe he was looking for and using a small explosive, blows it open. He grabs its contents and makes tracks. Later that night, when the apartment's tenant returns home, dot, dot, dot. The light's on in the apartment now and we see a brown suited cufflinked hand dropping a green fedora in shock. It's a guard too, as the man the hand belongs to screams, oh no! I've been robbed! Ladies and gentlemen, John Jonah Jameson Jr. is in the building. 
And I'm surprised Jameson can still see because the cats robbed him blind. All my stocks, bonds, important papers, gone. The safe is empty. Someone is going to pay for this. Then, after a hurried call to the local police precinct, dot, dot, dot. And we see two police detectives in the apartment with a smiling beat cop. My people, I think Joe and Tomas have been promoted. Tomas is checking out the wall safe. He's in a purple suit and fedora, staring into the empty safe. As Joe in a dark brown suit and green fedora talks to JJ with a hand in his pocket. No doubt about it, Mr. Jameson. This little caper has cat burglar written all over it. JJ, standing in front of a beautiful globe light in red and yellow, is waving a clenched fist and he's not taking this break in lightly. Well, he picked the wrong victim this time. I'm offering a thousand dollars reward for his capture. That ought to do the trick. He's put a price on the cat's head. A thousand dollars and you know I looked it up. 1K in today's money is $9,178.06. Almost 10 racks for the capture of the cat. But at that very moment, a truck carrying a dangerous but priceless load of uranium derivatives to the factory of Anthony Stark is followed by a second vehicle as they speed down a deserted street. Dot, dot, dot. A green dump truck with a large red danger sign plastered on its side, owned by the invincible Iron Man, that's Tony Stark, is racing up a dark street, but the driver doesn't notice the blue truck that's just pulled out of the alley behind it. The driver in this blue truck screaming that it's time to go because this is their chance. In the next panel, the top of the blue truck's caboose opens up, a metal bridge stretches from it towards the Stark truck, and four purple-clad men in lavender masks, each with a lavender gun holster on their hips, climb the bridge and race across it. And I just want to point out, each one of them is wearing a funky mask that looks like a gas mask. It is creepy. The heistman in the rear is saying that only the cat could have thought of a scheme like this. The lead guy shouts for them to proceed as planned, that he'll take care of the driver. In the final panel, we see he wasn't kidding. He gets right to work. Racing along the roof of Stark's truck and jumping onto the window of it, he shouts at the orange-clad driver. Just a word of advice, friend. Stop the truck and keep quiet if you want to remain as hale and hearty as you are right now. The driver screams he gets the message that he ain't a hero. Happy Hogan, this man is not. Meanwhile, on the hood of the truck, the third cat burglar thinks he heard a soft whoosh behind them. And if this goon doesn't have great hearing, because he's heard none other than the golden liability, who's web-swinging onto this chase scene robbery. Hi, fellas. Awfully nice of you to save this night from being a complete washout for me. The second burglar shouts for his crew to look out, because Spider-Man's here, and we got action. Spider-Man lands onto the Stark truck, shouting that just Spidey will do. There's no need for formalities. Burglar number one scales the speeding truck, telling number two to take the wheel and be ready to make a sharp turn when he gives the signal. Number two shouts that Spidey doesn't know they're wearing magnetic shoes to hold them onto the truck. This doesn't seem to matter in the moment, however, because Spidey's punched the clock in the next panel. He slams his left fist into burglar number three with a reverse haymaker, sending the man's chin facing north, and clubs number four with a right cross, diverting a punch aimed at him. While number one, crawling up the side of the truck, thinks, My plan was perfect. Except that I didn't count on any interference from such an unexpected source. The cat is here, making sure this goes off without a hitch as Spidey screams, Congratulations, boys. You joined the ranks of those who've been loaned to sleep by yours truly. But battling on top of a speeding truck isn't easy. In the next panel, the cat noticing Spidey is off balance, shouts for number two. Nice to meet you, number two. To swing the truck around fast. Spidey caught off guard goes flying, shouting that this is an unfriendly thing to do. Although hurled from the speeding truck, the young web spinner's amazing agility enables him to gracefully contact and cling to the building nearby. M dash, M dash, exclamation point. Spidey lands on a sheer wall behind the lamppost in the next panel, huh. wondering when he'll learn not to be so overconfident. Courting that violence, overconfident. Those things can't mix. But Spidey's got grit and he always commits. He's not giving up so easy. He scales the sheer wall of the building quicker than a hiccup and is on the roof in second, shouting, Perhaps I can still have them off by taking to the rooftops. I sure wouldn't want to be kicked out of the neighborhood Spider-Man Association. Spidey, chairman of the NSA, doesn't want to lose his membership. In the final panel, we find Spidey standing on a sheer wall of the building, his fist clenched ready to strike, but the truck is already gone. Spidey's not dejected, however. No sign of them, but they can't stay hidden from me for long. I eat my crunchies and brush after every meal. I'm sure it went out in the end. I looked up Crunchies, and the closest I could find was a cereal created by Kellogg's in 1965 known as Cream Crunch, made with chunks of real ice cream that even astronauts were eating. 
Spidey is a cereal guy, so you know that's a shout out to Wheats. On 5, inside the apartment near the sheer wall where Spidey's clean, a television set is playing the nightly news. And J. Jonah Jameson, the public-spirited newspaper publisher and philanthropist, has offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the cat burglar. Of course Spidey's going after the reward, thinking that Jameson will have a conniption fit when he realizes he'll have to pay out to Spider-Man. Spidey's wasting no time. He races towards 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building. You can't miss it to the corner office of J. Jonah Jameson. He's shouting that he's gonna pay the miserable magnate a visit right now. That jolting Jonah is becoming his favorite indoor sport. Descending outside of the office window in the next panel, he spots the paper pusher inside, burning the midnight oil as usual, thinking he'd recognize that flat top anywhere. Of course, Spidey enters through the window without permission and gets right to mouthing off. Hi, Chuckles, I just dropped by to tell you to keep your checkbook handy. I'm gonna bring you that cat character before you can say, all the way with JJJ. This expression is a play on the 36th president of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson's campaign trail slogan, LBJ, all the way, great domestic president, horrible international president, back to. So Spidey proving he's keeping up with the politics. JJ shouts, Spider-Man. Spidey calls it a witty comeback, but he doesn't plan to stay long. Already back outside the window, the golden liability tells JJ that he's not hanging around too long because JJ's so charming that Spidey might grow to like him. In which case, I'd have to kill myself. And JJ snaps, shaking it in a raised fist, his cigar clenched in his mouth as always, he shouts, stay away from the cat burglar. Do you hear? Keep out of this. The reward isn't for you. Spider-Man flees the scene, shouting that Jameson's masterful when he's angry. So Spidey's gone now, and JJ immediately falls headlong into his thoughts in the next panel. His eyes toward the ceiling, he imagines Spidey carrying the cat in a web net with one hand, as crowds of people cheer. One guy's holding a red sign that says, Spider-Man, hero. JJ's thinking the last thing he needs is Spidey swaggering down Madison Avenue with people applauding him. And JJ is sweating, flop sweating, in the next panel shouting, I'll have to pay him the reward in front of TV cameras, right out in public. He'll be gloating beneath that ugly mask of his. As his thoughts reveal his worst nightmare, that is, he, JJ, pen in hand, handing over a check for $1,000 to our hero while a news camera rolls in the background. But if you recall, Spidey can't cast checks. Nobody will cast a check for Spider-Man because he has no identification and refuses to give his name. So unless JJ is going to give him $1,000 in cash, JJ shouldn't be worried so much. Spidey has no chance of getting this money. You know and I know JJ's not going to give him $1,000 in cash. That's an easy loophole for the miserable magnate to exploit. Back to. In the final panel, we get the creepiest panel in ASM history thus far. JJ, his face buried in his hand, shouts, and to make it worse, I'll be a laughingstock because of the way I've always attacked him in my newspapers. Oh, I'd rather give the reward to the cat. As teeth and lips surround him, just guffawing. First of all, you see Spidey in a horrible image. His mask now has teeth in it, and he's cheesing above Jameson's head. I'm so glad right now that Spidey's mask does not have a mouthpiece. JJ is having a fever dream, wide awake. But on six, JJ snaps out of his chagrin, and thinking there's only one thing to do, grabs the receiver of his phone from its hook, and makes a call. 30 seconds later. Dot, dot, dot. We're in the home of Frederick Foswell in a great panel of us staring at him through his window with the blinds up. His gray hair is in 60s waves and in his left hand, he's holding up and staring at the mask I still swear he's bought from the chameleon. The mask? His underworld alias, the brown-haired, snitch with one eye, Patch. Foswell's got the receiver of his phone pressed to his ear and JJ, busy man that he is, fighting off public humiliation, is on the other end getting way past busy enough. Foswell, drop everything. Use all your underworld contacts. You've got to find the cat burglar before Spider-Man does. Foswell says he's going to do his best, thinking that he'll handle this job as the stoolie patch. While swinging blithely overhead, we find dot, dot, dot. The golden liability has been web-swinging all over the city in search of the cat, but unable to find him, decides to call it a night. Landing on a ledge where he stashed his civvies, that's street clothes, he gets changed, shouting that it's Aunt May's apple pie night, and he doesn't want to miss it. And I promise you, anybody who spends time in Midtown has to be able to deduce that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are the same person. This guy is always shouting out his plans. He's name dropping people half the time. He's saying things that he shouldn't be out loud half the time. 
Who could not put this together? But I guess when you're above it all, nobody can hear you scream. Back to. Then, after a good night's sleep. The next morning, we see Aunt May in a purple collared shirt and a tan vest doing the dishes. So, queen maid today. And it has to be pointed out that Pete never helped this woman with the housework for the record. She's always dusting or sweeping or mopping and he just rushes out every single time. Cinderella May, night and day, night and day. She spots Pete breaking towards the back door in his goldenrod kid outfit and asks if he's leaving so early. Like, you're not gonna help me mop this floor? Pete says yeah, that he wants to catch Betty before she gets to work, adding, and thanks again for the apple pie. It was the most. May, of course, has no idea about the slang he's using. She says the most what? And Pete's like, forget about it, Aunt May. See you later. He's walking down a street stage right in the next panel, looking over his shoulder, thinking he wants to catch Betty before she reaches the office so he won't be interrupted by Jameson or that charm boy, Nettie Leeds, as a pair of legs in a red skirt, gold pumps, and matching crossbody bag walk along the block perpendicular to him. Pete almost collided with the woman, shouting for her to watch out when he was the one looking over his shoulder, until he's surprised to find that it's the lion-hearted schoolyard scrapper, Liz Allen. She's wearing a brown shirt with different sized circles around it, a small golden pendant with matching earrings, and a black scrunchie holding her golden locks and a high ponytail. She exclaims, Petey, as I live and breathe, I haven't seen you since graduation. Pete returns a smile, he tells Liz she looks great, and asks what she's been doing with herself. Liz replies that she's taking a job and she's a working girl now, which clearly meant something completely different in the 60s. She says she won't bore Pete with the details, and he doesn't have to pretend to be interested. So Liz really does think that Pete doesn't care about her as a person, but we know that's simply not true. We've seen the history. Pete took out the Berber gang in the Museum of Natural History for the lion-hearted Liz way back in ASM number six. Face to face with the lizard. Or Florida Man wins Oscar, best male lead in poorly planned plot pursuing planetary power. Here on me and my friend Pete, and was crushing on her hard for a long time until he and Betty got hot and heavy. All that said, he tells Liz that he's not pretending in the next panel. Liz is over it, though. She says, anyway, Petey, do me a favor for old time's sake. And of course, Pete's like, I got you. What is it? In the final panel, the two are small in the background as Liz tells Pete the favor she needs. Flash Thompson is following me to see where I work. If he finds out, I'll just never get rid of him. Would you stall him for a while? Pete says it'll be his genuine pleasure. And we see the king of Foolsville, Flash, fashion on trash, Thompson, hasn't gained a lick of style since graduation. He's in his green turtleneck, he's in his green slacks, he's got his hands on his hips, he's standing next to a garbage can. I think that's fitting. And he's wondering, as he often does, what Liz is doing with Parker. He rushes towards the Golden Rock Kid to open page seven, and Pete jumps right into character, raising his left hand in salutation. He says, Wow, wow, if it isn't my old school chum and idol, Musclehead Thompson. Flash claps back. Step aside, string bean, before I finish off something I should have done while we were still in high school. I swear this guy always forgets the way Pete baptized him in the squared circle. You do not want it with the goldenrod kid. You're lying to yourself. Pete lures Flash into an alley in the next panel, and the king of Foolsville continues, saying that if Pete's trying to stop him from getting to Liz, he's going to paste him one, and now that he thinks about it, he should just do it anyway. I should just punch you in the face for no reason. I don't care if there's a reason. If there weren't, I should punch you anyway. Flash Thompson. But Pete, always mindful of his surroundings, spots bigger game than the young buck in front of him. On the roof, behind Flash, a man with a gun, the cat burglar, of all times for him to show. To Flash, he says, if I didn't know better, Sunbeam, I think you were threatening me. Call the boy Sunbeam. And Flash is like, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. That's what he's always going to do to anyone who tries to make time with his girl. Pete grabs Flash around the shoulders, pushing him up against the alley wall, saying Flash has as much of a chance as he, Pete does, with Sophia Loren. That's a Vince McMahon. Translation? No chance! That's what you got! And Flash tries to take Pete's head off with an uppercut, saying when he's done, even the Bride of Frankenstein won't give him a second look. Pete's like, good, she ain't my type anyway. Blondes, brunettes, redheads, but never noirettes. Never ever noirettes. In the next panel, Flash shouts, Hey! Let go! Ugh! As Pete gives him a baby chin check, knocking Flash out instantly before hopping onto a crate, then leaping onto the rooftop in the next panel, thinking he tapped Flash just hard enough to keep him out for a few minutes. Pete has to get after the cat burglar because he's too dangerous to be left running around the city. And Flash, 
He's sitting with his back against the crate, feet facing north, head on his chin. I imagine he's snoring. Out cold. Hachoo! Gazoom tight. And Pete's changed. In the final panel on page, we see the golden liability, suited and booted, racing along a rooftop, thinking he's got his costume changed down to a science, that he can go from Pete to Spidey almost as quick as a sneeze. And now, to stake my claim on Jameson's thousand dollar reward before old JJ comes to his senses. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity, Infinity Page! Page 8. Just in time to witness action before we can even get the clapperboard out as Spidey dives headfirst, right web shooter ready for thwipping, through an open apartment window, and onto the scene. The scene? A man in a purple sweater, green slacks, and brown newsy cap has a gun drawn on a white-haired man in a light brown suit and sky blue tie. The gunman shouts that he warned gray hair he'd get even, but Spidey's not having it. He sprays webbing, covering the gun, easily shouting. Hold it, Buster! Let's allow a cooler head to prevail! And flips ha! into the room, bracing his body weight on his left hand. The drizzy maneuver, agility on best ever. He clocks a man with an up and undercut with his right, quipping back to his knockoff Spidey suit. What happened to your cat costume? Did it shrink when you washed it? I have that same problem. And the gunman is out cold. The white-haired man tells Spidey he's grateful for his help that he fired the gunman earlier in the day for stealing, and the man came back to threaten him. I gotta say, guns drawn ain't a threat. He was about to put this man in the ground. Either way, Spidey, leaping back out of the window, tells the man to save his story for a confessional magazine, thinking this man wasn't a cat burglar after all. Seconds later, Gazoom tight. And Pete's back in his goldenrod kid outfit, dropping from the rooftop and into the alley with the slumbering Flash Thompson, thinking he almost forgot about the Foolsville Commandant, and now it's time for him to go into his act. Pete pulls Flash onto his feet in the next panel and pins him against the wall, just as Flash snaps too, shouting at Pete. He asks what happened, tells Pete to let him go, and calls him a panty waist. And Pete is ready for his close-up. Relax, deadhead. We just bumped our noggins together and knocked ourselves out for a minute. But you'll be okay. Nothing could hurt that thick skull of yours. Lion! He goes on to say that if Flash really wants to find Liz, He'll check out Dylan's department store. That's where she's working now. Flash calls Pete a chicken for telling him, racing out of the alley towards the department store that doesn't exist. You know I looked it up. As Pete, laughing with his left hand on his face, thinks, You'll change your answer on mine when you find out I like to you, sonny boy. Son him! You want a wild goo chase, Flashy, my boy? Meanwhile, at the home of Betty Brant, dot, dot, dot. We see Ned in an olive suit, red tie, holding Betty's door open as if he's about to leave. As Betty, still in the pink cashmere and matching skirt, has her back to us. She's telling Ned that she doesn't know what to say, just as her telephone rings. Ned tells her not to answer him now, just think about it, but he has to run because he's late to work. On 9, Betty picks up the phone and we fall smack dab into a 2pm soap opera. Shout out to Susan Lucci. I really like this panel. We're looking up at Betty from below and she has her chin slightly facing north. The best position you want to be in, in a conversation. And of course, it's Pete on the line. She tells him she's glad he's called, that she has to work in the afternoon, but she'd like to see him as soon as possible. Pete replies, You want it? Stay right there, Betty. I'll be over in two shakes. And when I say this kid must have raced across the city to get to her, I mean it. He's at her door, all smiles in the next panel, as she opens it for him. Hey, you look like your own self again. And that's tops with me. I'm glad you're feeling okay now. And Betty, the damsel usually without fear in the pink cashmere, replies, I, I'm ashamed of myself for being so shaken up by the scorpion that time, but at least it's all over now. She's referring to literally less than 24 hours ago when Spidey and Scorpion got his shaking all through Manhattan. That's ASM number 29. Never step on a scorpion. Or the golden liability, the spider, the scorpion, and the tale of the rivers three. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to. Pete reads the tone of her voice and asks her to tell him what's on her mind that he has a funny feeling it won't make him happy. And Betty is frazzled. Hands to chin level? Fist right at her chin. She says she doesn't even know where to begin. Pete replies, try the beginning, just for kinks. And I'm sure Betty's like, always oh, a smart ass. So she lowers the boom in the next panel in a blue negative space. Well, in a nutshell, Ned has asked me to marry him. Pete, his mouth open, his face in shades of green, denoting his envy, I'm sure. He replies, phew. Nutshell my foot, that's a whole peanut factory. But he's thinking, I've got to think fast. Now I have to tell her that I'm Spider-Man. Then I'll propose to her myself. P. 
he wants to marry this woman. He does not want to lose her to the demon reporter Ned Leeds. He's going to bend the knee. He's going to let the spider out of the bag, and he's wasting no time in doing so. In the next panel, he thinks, I'm approaching Catherine. Don't want to shock her too much. Okay, so he's wasting a little time. Before saying, Ned's a good guy, I guess. He did try to help you against the scorpion. Of course, he's no Spider-Man, but... But Betty cuts him off. She tells Pete not to mention Spider-Man, that if Ned was anything like the Golden Liability, she wouldn't even consider marrying him. Pete does a hard gulp. I'm sure his Adam's apple just jumped into his mouth. We're watching them from outside of the living room window in the next panel. Both of them have their heads lowered and slumped shoulders. Betty's clutching her right forearm with her left hand as she continues. She says she's had enough excitement and worries in her life that she still thinks about her brother. Her brother being Bennett, who got in bad with the mob and was killed by mobster Blackie Gaxton in Philadelphia back in ASM number 11, Turning Point. Or, what if Bennett was definitely in it? Here on Me and My Friend Pete, back to. Because of all of this, Betty says she could never love a man who risked his life every day, i.e. Spider-Man. Pete says he never thought of it that way. Betty goes on to say, I want a man who has a good steady job, who comes home each night to his pipe and his paper, and to me, and that's not unreasonable at all. Betty wants a quiet life. Most people just want to live and be happy and keep on living without drama, without adventuring, without being snatched up by Dr. Octopus every eight months. That's what most people want. In the final panel, open hand to her chin, she tells Pete that she thought he was that guy. That's why she was so attracted to him at first. His sincerity, his brains, his hardworking attitude. Pete looks away from her. She asks if she said something wrong. Pete says no. Tin opens to a long horizontal, Pete storming towards us and the door, Betty chasing him, and he is pissed. You didn't say anything wrong. Not a thing. I get the picture. Ned Leeds is the guy for you. I guess it was always him. He's just what you want. A plain, hardworking, average Joe. Well, goody for both of you. And I gotta say, I understand Pete's sentiment here. I'm trying to get into Cooperstown. You want a regular Joe? That's fine. I'm not knocking it. But it does seem like he's not. Shut it, you. Betty asks what he's saying. She shouts for him to wait, that she didn't mean to. She begs for him not to go. But with the door slammed, Pete's gone. Betty, her hands pressed against the door, lets out all her woes to the wood. It's you I love. It's always been you. Oh, Peter, why didn't you let me explain? The camera zooms in tight on her and shrouded in blue, two tears running down her left cheek in profile. She continues. Why wouldn't he listen? What is it that always stands between us? The one secret he keeps locked within him. The secret he never shares or talks about. And I gotta say, I love the use of colors here. We had Pete in a green silhouette denoting his envy. We have Betty in a blue silhouette denoting her sadness. Emotions are running high all through this thing already. And outside the house, a youthful figure stands, oblivious to everything save the ache in his heart. Dot, 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 exclamation point. Pete, his heart broken, his shoulders slouched, he stands outside the door thinking, that tears it for good. It's over, I've lost her. While in the office of Jonah Jameson, dot, dot, dot. Jameson is pacing, hands behind his back, cigar in mouth, as usual, and he is jittery. Every time that blasted phone rings, I'm afraid it's the news that Spider-Man has captured the cat. But JJ picks up and it's none other than the stoolie patch and his signature mask and a gray pork pie hat. He's in a phone booth and telling JJ that he hasn't heard anything about the cat, but he's gonna keep at it. JJ is pissed. He tells Patch not to come back until he's found the cat, no matter how long it takes, and slams the phone. I gotta say, in this world of touchscreen phones, a lot of gratification has been lost in the slam of a phone and that little wee that comes with it. Been thinking about getting a landline just for that good old feel. What you say? Talk to the tone. Done. Back to. In the final panel, JJ, both his hands pressed on his desk, his cigar at the center of his mouth, continues his sad soliloquy about having to pay reward money to his enemy. Miserable as he is, he says paying a rack to anyone is bad enough. But Spider-Man? For shame. And so, the various characters in our dramatic little web of life each go through their paces under the guidance of an inscrutable fate. Dot, dot, dot. And we find Patch in the Third Street bar to open 11, having a brewski, thinking that if he hangs around long enough, he's sure to get a lead on the cat, eventually. While, for a saddened Peter Parker, the search for the cat has become almost forgotten. Dot, 
Dot, dot. Pete, hands in pocket, is walking down a crowded New York street, lost in the saddest of thoughts. There's no way out. She'd never have me as I am. And I just can't give up being Spider-Man. And he's right. He's got great power. You already know the rest. And because of the rest, he won't have bets. His S-curl dangling low around his eyebrows, his thoughts continue. So she'll end up marrying Leeds and living the quiet, uneventful life she dreams of. There's only one thing I've got to figure out. How do I forget about the girl I love? My advice, everybody who's living feels the wind blow, Pete. You got to learn to walk in the sky. So you're ripping off Paul Simon now? Shut it, you! Pete doesn't have time to dwell. He heard that shot just like we did. He knows there's trouble. Cosmic and comic timing have laid danger in his path, and as he often does when his personal life starts falling apart, Pete wants some arachnotherapy. It's just what I need. Action. Work for Spider-Man. Achoo! Gesundheit. And the golden liability is on the scene, clinging to a sheer wall of a building. The scene? The Berber gang in one of their usual bank robberies. We've got Badger in front in a gray suit and blue fedora, red tie. Sneaky Pete in a tan suit, green newsy cap, green tie. Rocky in an olive suit, red pinstripe shirt, and blue fedora. And of course, Jesse Pink in a dark brown suit, green tie, with matching fedora. All of them are gripping cliche yellow money bags in their right hands, and they all must be lefties because every one of them has a pistol in their left. They're all rushing out of a bank, single file, Jesse bringing up the rear, and he's shouting for them to keep running, that they're getting away clean as a whistle. But of course they're not. Spidey, both hands gripping a web line, his legs out in front of him, web swinging above their head shouts. Correction, fellas, did you ever hear of a dirty whistle? And I gotta say I looked up a dirty whistle, could only find Urban Dictionary's definition, and I'm definitely not going with that. Back to Badger shouts, who said that? Sneaky Pete looks back and up, shouting for them to look out, that it's Spider-Man. All four gang members look up and behind them, but they've gotta be quicker than that. Because while they're looking back, Spidey lands in the middle of the group, and we got action. He taps Sneaky Pete's jaw with a left straight and sends Badger reeling with a right uppercut at the same time. And he's shouting, Wee-hoo! Oh, Spidey rides again! Giddy up. Rocky and Jesse are playing no games to open 12. In a gorgeous panel, they're both firing diagonally. Their bullets crossing and racing towards the bottom corners of the panel. Damn near clipping each other. Rocky shouts that they can't let Spidey stop him. Jesse calls him a lame brain and tells him to watch where he's shooting. Spidey, agility on best ever, is completely unbothered. He's leapt straight up above the bullets, telling them he'll be right back so they shouldn't get lonely. But Spidey never leaves. Leaning forward in the air, he throws both fists out wide, screaming, I'm really doing you boys a favor. With the high price of bullets today, you'll go broke if someone doesn't stop you. The economically considerate hero, Spider-Man, and knocking both men out cold. Clinging to a sheer wall on the next panel, Spidey has crafted a web net and has all four Berbers trapped inside of it, hoisting them above the city easily with one hand. He shouts for them to hold still, that he'll have them safely in the jail cell before they know it. Sneaky Pete shouts for Spidey to hurry and do that little thing, because anything will be better than going through this. And as the inevitable crowd begins to gather, a cruising truck slows down across the street. Dot, dot, dot. And gather is an understatement. People are sprinting up the block towards Spidey and the Berbers to get a sight of the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. One guy in a brown suit is smiling like this is the highlight of his life. As a blue, nondescriptive van parks across the street and someone inside screams, Blast luck! Spider-Man caught the gang we hired to pull that big job for us! And their fault, they should have checked the Berber gang's resume. They are O for everything when going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Spider-Man. Should have fired the enforcers. Those guys know how to pull a heist. In the next panel, we're inside the van where we see a chauffeur in a green suit, driver's cap, and orange bow tie, looking back at one of the cat's mini purple-clad, gas-mask-faced goons. And the goon is pissed. I knew the cat shouldn't have trusted anyone except his own gang. Get going. I have to report this to him right away. The driver says gotcha and peels away from the curb. In the back of the van, the goon uses a portable communicator about 400 times the size of today's smartphones to call the cat. They bought the cable, boss, but there's one good thing about it. They're just hired hoods. They won't be able to spill the beans about us. I'm guessing they're not paying the Berber's bail. In the final panel, as the van kicks up dust, the cat replies, That's true enough, but Spider-Man is beginning to be a nuisance. It might be necessary for me to take steps to stop him before he becomes too dangerous to my future plans. The cat is going on 
The attack. Minutes later, a crestfallen young man wearily wins his way to a quiet little house in Forest Hills. Pete's walking up the steps of his porch, his body language still defeated. That's head lowered, that's shoulders hunched, that's hands in pockets. He's thinking, a typical Parker day. I lost my girl, couldn't find the cat, and didn't even have a token for the subway ride home. Pete is so dejected, he wasn't even trying to swing. He tried to take the subway home. While in her bedroom upstairs, dot, dot, dot. When it rains on the webhead, you know it's torrential. May is lying down in her bed in a signature full-length green dress, her right hand above her white hair, resting on the pillow, and she's not taking an afternoon nap. Hearing Pete's footsteps, she thinks, Footsteps. It must be Peter returning. I mustn't let him realize that I felt so dizzy I had to lie down. May's still been having dizzy spells since at least last issue, and she's clearly had another one now. But Pete won't know that. By the time he enters the house, May's gotten out of bed and is at the top of the landing, waiting for him. He shouts up at her, asking if there's any more of that bomb apple pie she made. May tells him there is. It's in the fridge. She descends the stairs into the next panel with him, and talking to his back, tells Pete that Betty's been calling for him non-stop, and that the young woman insisted he call her when he got in. And this is where May and my Nana defer. Nobody's going to be calling our house over and over and over and over and over again. I remember my grandmother cursed this one. Look, the point is, you call one time, you leave your message, you be patient. You blowing up my phone. This is a landline. We don't have call waiting. Who do you think we are? The Kennedys? Back to. Of course, Pete thinks, oh no. And staring at the phone in the den in the next panel continues. What's the use of prolonging the agony? There's nothing more that either of us can say. It's all over. I might as well let it remain that way. Pete's going to starry decisis this out. Translation? Let the decision stand. But if he's anything like Scotus, nobody believes him. Then, after a piece of apple pie, which the saddened youth has eaten out of sheer habit, hardly tasting a mouthful, dot, dot, dot. Pete's eating his humble pie and is sitting in front of his GE Black Daylight television set, model 16C103. I'm telling you, I googled it, that's the model. That's a nice TV. Pete's watching the news as Bat News anchor, he got promoted, tells New York, As yet, Jonah Jameson's thousand dollar reward for the cat is still unclaimed. He has not been heard from since. Pete thinks it's just his luck that the cat probably retired. But another is watching that same newscast. A cold-eyed man chortles in grim self-satisfaction. Dot, dot, dot. And we're in a room with a sofa encounter in the background, a television in the corner of the lower left panel, and a white guy standing in the center of the room with a beer in his right hand and a cigarette in his mouth. The guy's in a white undershirt, brown pants, and dark brown loafers, and he's got true gingerbread hair. It's magnificent, but he's not. He's monologuing something fierce. So far, so good. Nobody suspects that an ordinary second-story man like me is also the uncatchable cat burglar. A second-story man? The literal definition is a burglar who enters through an upper-story window. Translation? A cat burglar. The man just said nobody would suspect a cat burglar of being a cat burglar. Call me crazy, but I don't think this issue is going to end well for him. In the next panel, Sig in one hand, beer in the other, he continues his monologue shouting that the police can't watch every building, so he's going to pull off one more heist before laying low, just to keep his hand in. He walks over to a map on his wall and stares at it, rubbing his chin with his left hand. The one-piece suit, the gun holster, and utility belt of his cat burglar outfit in the foreground, and he's saying that's what he's going to do kick his feet up, and think of a plan to get rid of Spider-Man. He wonders aloud where the police would least expect the cat to strike. Minutes later. On 14, the cat is getting suited and booted. He throws his green jumpsuit on. He's thrown on his utility belt and grapple line. He's swinging his rucksack onto his back. He's about to grab his glove draped on the back of a chair and his mask off the table, and he's screaming. It's getting dark now, so it's time for the cat to go out on the prowl. The cat is on the prowl. The next panel, he's throwing his gloves and balaclava on. He's racing along a rooftop at full sprint in a gorgeous panel. His body weight shifted forward onto his right foot. It is beautiful to look at. And he's shouting that if he can outsmart Spider-Man, he can get away from anyone. Finally, a villain that's putting respect on the webhead's name. Meanwhile, at a local underworld hangout, dot, dot, dot. Pat's the Stooley is at the Third Street Bar under a ceiling lamp on a wall payphone in the foreground as people crowd around the bar in the background. He's just called JJ and he's telling the miserable magnate 
that there's a second story man that hasn't been seen in a while. A second story man who shares most of the cat's trademark moveset. We were just talking about this. They would never suspect a cat burglar of being a cat burglar. Patch is like, look man, second story man went missing, cat burglar pops up on the scene, one plus one is not 80, one plus one is two. You hear hoofs, you think horses, not zebras. Back to JJ burning the midnight oil at the Daily Bugle in the next panel. His receiver pressed against his left ear, his hand on the desk. He listens to Pat say he needs to find evidence and that when he, Patch, does, he'll call JJ back and tip off the police. JJ, eyes wide, replies, Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, do that, do that. Everybody talks about friends in high places, but it's the ones in the low places in the 616 that keep that plot moving. JJ hangs up the phone and rubbing his hands together with a hopeful smile shouts that now they're getting somewhere and hopes they can nab the cat before that web-headed weasel gets involved. Shout out to Stoolie Louie, the weasel. And at the home of that web-headed weasel, who shall be nameless, dot, dot, dot. May and Pete are in the den. May's throwing her brown sweater on over her emerald green dress and is telling Pete she's going to hang out with Mrs. Watson for a while. She asks if Pete wants to come along, but he tells her no and to enjoy herself. In a great panel that puts Pete inside the loop of the den's phone, Pete thinks, uh-uh, that's probably Betty again. I can't pick it up. I might say something I'd regret. The kid is pulling a play from many a jolted lover's playbook when dealing with hurt heartstrings. Avoid, avoid, avoid. That can't be healthy. Neither's wood for reserve, but damn if it ain't good whiskey, you're strange. Back to, and Pete's right. In the final panel, we see Betty, still in the pink cashmere. She has a phone pressed to her ear. Eyes closed, she's thinking, Peter must be home by now. Why doesn't he answer the phone? Why won't he talk to me? You just told this man you might be getting engaged. Granted, you didn't give him an answer, but you had the time to say, I'm going to tell this man no, and you didn't. And you don't know what Pete's going through. He's Spider-Man. He cannot have you. And I got to say, I thought I was an addict for dramatics, but Pete is a full-on junkie. He sprints from the house as the phone rings. So fast, his S-curl is flapping in the wind atop his head. I can't take it. If I stay there, I won't be able to help myself. I'll have to pick it up. I'll get out of the house. It's the only way. We're watching him run through the window. It's a gorgeous panel. Ditko's coming with all sorts of great perspectives in this one. Working as goats do. Seconds later, the most dramatic figure in all adventuredom takes to the rooftops again. Dot, dot, dot. Achoo! Gesundheit. Suited and booted, Spidey's balancing legs wide on a power line, easily staring down at the city below. Thinking he's going to stay on the prowl for the cat, it's the only thing he can do to keep his mind off Betty. And as luck would have it, dot, dot, dot. The cat is punching the clock. We see him on the sheer wall of a building outside of a window, his knees wrapped in suction cup grips, a collapsible jimmy in his hand as he's prying the window open. But before he can get the window open, a blonde-haired man in his bathrobe pokes his head out of the window shouting, Hey, what's going on there? Our windows were just washed yesterday. Wait a minute. You're no window washer. You're the cat. They wash windows at night in Marvel 616 universe. And the cat books it in the next panel, rappelling down his grapple hook, head towards the ground. He's thinking of all the crummy luck as someone shouts for the police to hurry because he's getting away. The cat, for his part, thinks he had to pick the one building that had its windows washed yesterday, apparently in the dead of night. Meanwhile, in a gorgeous panel, cosmic and comic timing have put Spidey in the area, his body cloaked in green and black shadow as he web swings above the city as spotlights dance back and forth in the distance. He wonders what the spotlights are for, but says it'd be his crummy luck to have them set up for a movie premiere. BJ Cosmos may definitely be in the building. Either way, Spidey's gonna check it out. In the final panel, we're ground level with the Spotlight crew, and it's most definitely not BJ Cosmos and his gang of movie yes-men. Instead, we see a television crew draped in orange and shadow. The reporter, standing behind one of the spotlights with a mic in his hand, says this is a telecast for special public affairs, that the cat burglar was spotted in the area as the lead cameraman barks to his assistant Joe to keep the camera steady, and a beat cop, I'm guessing Ike, shouts for the camera team to train the lights on every inch of the street. And, alone in his office, J. Jonah settles back with a happy heart for the first time in hours. Dot, dot, dot. And we have the return of J.J. the Triumphant playing trumpets to himself. He's in profile. He's got a cigar in his mouth. He's got his hands interlocking behind his head. He's got his legs crossed. He's puffing that cigar. And he's all smiles as he watches the cat on his black and white television set 
dead center in a spotlight on live TV. But Triumph returns to tie rating in seconds as the TV displays the one and only King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, releasing a web line and dropping down onto the scene. Does JJ snap? Is it illegal to fart in a New York church? Wait, what? Of course he snaps! Slamming both fists on top of the television set, he screams, Get away from there! Quit butting in! It's not your fight! Go away! Why did this happen to me? Everything was going so well! Why am I always plagued by that webhead? Why? 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 Call it karma, JJ, or just those good old New York breaks. Either way, we shift our focus to Spidey, who lands on a thin ledge behind the cat, who's racing away from him as the spotlights dance around the two men. And we got action. Spidey shouts, Whether thou goest, I go, pussycat. Called my man a pussycat. And the chase is afoot. As the cat runs, he thinks he has to find a way to outsmart the webhead. And he does. In the next panel, he spins around on the spot and flashes a beam of light into Spidey's face, stunning our hero for a moment, asking Spidey if he expected that. Spidey shouts, To tell the truth, Loudmouth, I didn't. Then thinks, I was careless. The cat is nobody's fool. I don't know, Spidey. You should hear this guy talk about the difference between a cat burglar and a two-story man. And the cat is working. He pulls his grappling hook from his belt and spins it in front of his face towards Spidey, who falls off the thin ledge, shouting that our hero was defeated by an everyday device that he uses to ply his trade. <laughs> Where do I even begin? A grappling hook is not an everyday device. The cat is a strange man with a strange idea of the world. But what's falling off the ledge going to do to the man with the stickiest of hands? Nothing. The spotlight shining on our hero, he grips the wall of the building with both hands, shouting, Defeated? Bite your tongue, chum. I'll be back for more playtime before you know it. As the cat looks on from the ledge above, thinking that he forgot how agile Spidey is and how he clings to walls. Agility on, best you've ever seen. On 17, Spidey shouts, Ready or not, here I come. So you know that's a shout out to the Fugees. But the cat ain't going down without a fight. He goes into his utility belt and pulls explosives from inside, setting them up on the legs of a nearby water tower, thinking if he can blow them in time, he'll get rid of Spidey forever. Spidey backflips with a twist and is hanging from the ledge in the next panel, shouting that anyone on his base is it. As we get rail, bumper, bumper, rail, hole, shatter, and the legs of the water tower explode. The container goes hurtling over the side of the building towards Spidey who thinks, Something tells me I've worn out my welcome with that guy. Before agility on most amazing, flips to the side huh. as the water tower crashes into the ledge with a large, beautiful, stylized crash sending water down onto the street below. And you know Spidey's got a quip, thinking that it's lucky the streets below were cordoned off. He shouts, Sorry I couldn't hang around, kitty cat, but loud noises give me a splitting headache. Call this man a kitty cat. Spidey leaps up onto the huh. rooftop in the next panel, continuing his ribbing. If I didn't know better, I'd suspect you of harboring a deep-seated hostility towards me. The cat breaks north, wondering if there's any way to get rid of the spider. But he's got to know the one-man thrill ride is harder to get rid of than a bad rash. Spidey leapfrogs the chimney in the final panel, pouring it on now. If you're determined to play final the leader, can't you try some more interesting stunts? The cat, sweat beginning to run down his face, thinks he's tried everything else, but now he's going to have to go to the one thing that won't fail. His gun and pulls a revolver from one of his mini utility belt pouches, spinning towards the webhead. On 18, Spidey, his Spidey sense of blade, gets dodgy. Both legs bent, his left kicked out in front of him, his right up against his chest. He grabs the chimney with his right hand and flips over it, shouting that he knew, I knew it, that the cat was antisocial as the villain fires a shot that misses. He's thinking that Spidey moves like he's on strings, but he's going to clip the guy eventually. He fires another shot at the webhead, who dodges it easily, taking cover upside down behind a slope jut of the roof, and Spidey shouting that the only reason he hasn't lost his temper is because of the thousand dollars the cat is worth to him. But he's thinking, I'm gonna make him use up his ammo, and then, kapow, kapow, how you like me now? But the cat's caught between a rock and a hard place, because Mike and Ike have just hit the rooftop, shouting for him to throw down his weapon and surrender while he has a chance. He thinks he's really in for it, and he's not wrong. But Spidey's done chasing. Too many bullets are flying and he's fleeing the scene. Hopping down from the roof, he thinks that he's going to get out of the line of fire for a while before he turns into one of the innocent bystanders who's hit with a stray that he's read so much about. In the final panel, bullets whizzing by him, hiding behind a corner of a rooftop, the cat is getting desperate. He thinks, Cops, 
while I was concentrating on Spider-Man, they managed to read the roofs ahead of me. Now I'm really in for it. I'll be surrounded in a few more seconds, but maybe I can still scheme my way out of this. I'll set off another charge over here and try to escape under cover of the smoke. And sets a charge at the base of the wall he's using for cover. On 19, the grenade goes off and lets out a cloud of smoke. It fills the scene, blanketing the rooftop. Ike shouts, this won't save you, cat. Mike says they need to close in quick. Black man and an officer named Charlie with red hair both like Charlie's graduated high school and join the task force. Arrive on scene now. The four cops converge on the corner where the cat was from four different directions. But the cat is slippery. The smoke starts to dissipate and the four officers are stumped. Why? The cat is gone. Blackman, standing next to the chimney spidey leapfrog to get to the cat on the last page, says the cat couldn't have just vanished, that he's got to be around here somewhere. Ike says for sure, but where? Spidey, watching from a sheer wall nearby and above the scene, isn't fooled though. That sinks it. It's only a matter of time before they realize where he's hiding. So here's where I kiss that reward money goodbye. Charlie isn't fooled either. Standing in front of the chimney, he says there's one place they haven't looked. Ike scratching his head says he doesn't think so, that they've searched everywhere. Charlie's like elementary, my dear Ikeson. We didn't notice it because we're standing on top of it and turns towards the chimney where a grappling hook is attached to its mouth. The cat is literally holed up in the chimney. In the next panel, we get a view of the two officers staring down into the hole, and Charlie the Rook, proving he's going to fill Joe and Tomas' absence quite nicely, says, what's this piece of rope doing here? Let's cut it and see what happens. The cat may be a second story man, but he has no superpowers and he ain't Kris Kringle. He will not survive a fall down this chimney. He shouts for them not to cut the rope, that he'll come up. And in the final panel, we see he's done exactly that, but he's not happy about it at all. Nuts! Between you eager beavers and Spider-Man, a fella can't earn a simple dishonest buck anymore. Charlie, nabbing his first collar, replies, Don't tell us, fella. Where you're going, there'll be a nice sympathetic warden to listen to all your complaints. I imagine back at the precinct, the chief's just gotten a call. You hear that, boys? The kid brought in the cat without a body count. Caught him in a chimney stack. None dead. Yeah, well, he wasn't dealing with many bodies, was he? That ain't the point. You're detectives now. I expect a little more discretion from you. Are we clear? As a sunny day in London. What? Nothing, Chief. Glad the kid got the collar. Surprised the perp ain't fall down to shoot with a name like the cat. In this city, I'd expect him to have... Don't say it. Nine lives. It was right there, Chief. He had to. No. What you gotta do is get down to the park docks. Got a case I want you to handle. You sure you want to leave it in our hands, boss? I am. Not worrying we'll make a mess? I'm not. Guy's already dead. Go. And as the now subdued cat burglar is quietly led away, Dot, dot, dot. 20 opens, we're back on the rooftop, and Spidey, his legs and bum still pressed against the sheer wall, has his camera out, snapping pictures for his Donuts and Dimes account. Anyway, it won't be a total loss. I'll be able to sell these photos of the cat's capture to Jolly Jones for a tiny sum. Though I sure hate to see that lucky guy get off the hook with the reward so easily. And in Jameson's office. Dot, dot, dot. Jameson is slouched in his chair, a smile on his cigar-chomping lips, his right hand running through his hair, triumphant once more. Phew, so the good guys do went out in the end after all. Everything turned out fine for me at last. I guess it's because I'm such a kindly, lovable character. I'm convinced that the now flows from JJ into the 616 universe. Later, when Peter brings the newly developed photos to the Daily Bugle offices, dot, dot, dot. Pete's got an envelope of pictures in his hands, his goldenrod vest on, his SJBs, his S-curl, and his back to Betty Brant who's wearing a fire high-collared vest with white sleeves beneath it and a pink crosshatch skirt. She tells him she's glad to see him, that she's been waiting for him to drop by because she simply must talk to him. But Pete ain't only bringing pictures, he's brought the salt. Why bother, Betty? There's nothing more for us to say. Lee's proposed to you, and he's the kind of guy you want. So let's just leave it at that. And without a backward glance, he enters JJ's office, where the paper pusher goes straight for his miser cap. Not bad, Parker. Not bad. Of course, they're not worth much in cold cash, but I can afford to be generous saying I saved the reward money. Pete doesn't even fight it. He says JJ can pay him whatever he wants because nothing seems to matter much anymore anyway. He gets his cash, pockets it, and leaves the office. And so we take our leave of Peter Parker for now as he and the girl he loves go their separate ways, both tragically kept apart by the mysterious, ever-present figure whom the world knows only as Spider-Man. And we get a gorgeous, gorgeous panel and this, the panel of the week. Of Pete, stage right, his shoulders hunched, head lowered, exiting through the bullpen, 
stage left. As Betty watches him in profile at the edge of stage right, a tear running down her right cheek. In between them, his head lowered, a ghostly wraith between the two star-crossed lovers, his arms stretched wide, keeping them apart, is the outline of Spider-Man. The end. And we're out. One of my favorite, favorite things about Spider-Man comics are issues like this one, when the villain is not the main plot point. This issue was all about Pete's personal life and it's turned upside down. He and Betty are through. Pete can definitely deal with a demon reporter, but an engagement? Not so much. Aunt May is still suffering in silence and JJ is still a cheapskate. It wasn't all bad though. Flash got a chin checking that he can't remember, but I won't forget. And we know the rule when Pete gets knocked down. There's only one place to go. The writing and art were pitch perfect in this, the final story in Masterworks Volume 3. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode, but there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support the show on Patreon.com, Slash HSPP. Patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week we're going back into DC's most dangerous of madhouses with Joker's Asylum 2, Killer Croc, number one. A tale of the detective comics' most vicious man eater. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us! This podcast is completely listener supported and you know your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening and as always, a special thanks to the home team, Parker's Dirty Dozen. Sign up now, vote on bonus episodes, make it a Baker's. We'd love to have you. We've gotten great feedback on our season one pins, so why mess with a good thing? If you sign up before ASM number 50, you'll receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com HSPP, no charge. And if you've got questions, send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.